is this, you know, this is your sixth novel, is, is this the one that you've been wanting to write? But no, not yet, so let me do the second. No, not yet, let me do the third. Oh, well, that's an interesting thought. And it should have been like that, shouldn't it? I mean, if, if I were to say, well, this, this novel is, is based on a, a true fact, which is that my parents' wedding was nearly interrupted by a crocodile tamer um, <clears throat> with a vengeance, um, you'd think that if I had that in my family history, it would always just have been waiting for me to uh, put pen to paper. But it was, um, for some reason, that's, that little fact, which was one of the few facts I knew about my father, uh, and passed on to me by my mother, which was that he'd been engaged to a crocodile tamer, um, I, it just hung there. And it was just an odd thing. For all I knew, other children's parents had leopard tamers <laughs> creeping down the aisle. Um, <laughs> so it just didn't, and I think it was, it's one of those books that was waiting for me to grow older, to get nearer the age my father was when he died, to do that kind of life assessment and think, so what is the shape of the life? Why do I have a, a father buried in an unmarked grave? Um, what, yeah, to, to sort of take stock again. Um, and it was sort of, uh, I was with Cara on a very cold winter's night in 2014 when and it, it was just so cold we had the heater and the fire on and I said why don't we google that woman that our father nearly married and we couldn't even remember her name we got typed wrong into google and eventually we got the right uh, we clicked Karinga and just came up tens of thousands of of links and videos and posters and newspaper clippings and um, I think it was then in 2014 when I was already in my 50s and and the background processing began and I just could it never left me from that moment that my father whom we somewhat discounted we would if we referred to him it was with a kind of rueful laugh had once attracted the love of one of the most, who was one of the most famous women in England at the time, um, and and that she had been so angry at him marrying my mother that she had said she was coming to the church. And, and there were these priests, my mother said, priests were put outside, they got the youngest and the most muscular priests to stand outside in case this tiny woman came with the crocodiles, because she'd been known to go out in public with them. I mean, she would go and have coffee in department stores with them. So that so was like, um, and yeah, I think I think it was. It's a book. It is a work of psychoanalysis. In some ways, I needed to have gone through some of uh, what my father went through. Some, and in particular, I think he he went through writing struggles, and. It, and it required me at this, this stage of my career to actually see this link, which I think I'd always suspected between the two of us. This desire to be a writer and the kinds of sacrifices and the, the massive possibility of failure always there. Uh, what I didn't realize, um, we've not spoken much about your father over the years that we've known each other, but what I didn't realize that he was an advertising copywriter who has written some of the most famous strap lines in South African history. Yeah, I mean, we, we lived off going to Gunston and uh, main rate Gunston the Great and, ah, he knows. Um, you know, 
you mind telling the story of how R E knows, or how you conceive of how E knows, R E knows, came into his mind and therefore into the advertising lexicon of South Africa? Well, in the book, we see, I mean, this is, comes to fiction, and, yeah. you know, I mean, I wasn't there at the time, I wasn't alive, well, I think I was alive. The, the children had been incredibly naughty all day, children being us. Um, and, all um, and the boys had nearly got themselves shot in the clay pit, um, and, um, and one of them had got lost, or, but was not a lost, he was, the little one was actually asleep under, under my father's desk, and so this drives him absolutely crazy because he's a very nervous man, so to think that a baby's been lost, so he's absolutely beside himself, and when the day comes to an end and he's looking for a ginger beer or something, and the boys have, have stolen that, so he doesn't even have a mixer for his brandy. Um, anyway, he pours himself a, um, a soda water in his brandy and says, ah, he knows. <laughs> and, and he goes off and types this line that's going to sell so many sachets, he knows. <laughs> it did, and it's really, men rate Dunstan great and are, you know, it's, they believe that's all, it's not inside, it's on top of it. It's that kind of ranking for those lines. Um, the, the concept of appropriation is very occurrent in, in literature at the moment, what you're allowed to write about and what you're not allowed to write about. You're writing your family's story, fictionalized, but with a very strong truth narrative in it. Was there any thought that you that you were doing something which you shouldn't do? Was that an initial qualm that you had to overcome? Yeah, I actually think well, my my character Gina, who is trying to write the book in the book, um, actually says that um, in order to write a good book, you need to feel that you are doing something wrong. Um, that if you don't have that sense of trespass, then it isn't going to be a good book. Because the trespass is what takes you into other people's minds and lives. You know, you you step over the boundary of you know just the make believe, and you you go into the real. So I think I was very concerned. I was I was particularly concerned with the section of the book that then intersects with. Um, my brother's life in, in particular. Um, and I, because I, I knew they had a, a, a difficult history with my father, um, but they might not like the way I depicted it. So um, that has made me anxious, and I'm still, there's still one review outstanding. The ones that are in a good. The ones that are in a good. And I mean, how does one then go about excavating? because you were saying your father didn't talk much, and um, Gina says in the book that there was not a lot of research material to go on in, in terms of you know, family diaries and, and letters and things. So uh, yes, you did a lot of research, and one of, one of the incredible achievements of this book is the way that you place Paddy in all these different places, in England, in France, in Scandinavia, uh, in North Africa, in Italy during the Second World War, and you make it seem as if you were there with him, holding his hand as he went through all this stuff. So I mean, that that is, that is, I think, evidence of what imagination allied to research can produce. Yeah. Um, well, I think first of all, just 
about making people feel that, that they are in the place where you are, that's always been so important to me. It's probably why my early novels were so much set in Corpe and places that I knew. And that I, I just, I wanted, I've always wanted to convince people that they are where I say they are. And I think it goes back to my childhood playing with dolls or making games outside. I wanted things to feel real. And so this book also, I knew, was, was also a book I had to wait to get to be a better writer, I think, because I was going to have to, I mean, I did, there was no budget for writing this book. I could not fly to Oslo and, and see what it was like to walk the streets. And if, even if I had, it wouldn't have been Oslo in the 1930s. So, um, so it was this act of imagination. But the research behind it is fascinating because you, you're looking for something, but you're not looking for, I'm not looking for Oslo 1938. I'm looking for the menu of the Johans Gata Road restaurant or I'm looking for something that is just particular so that I have to I have to sort of trick the internet into giving me what I want. I mean um, you just have to, to put in different search terms uh, until you trick it into giving you these gorgeous details. These um, yeah I, I've tricked the internet into finding all my father's school magazines. Um, and um, so I was able to hear him being quoted in the debating society, which was just wonderful. Um, the problem with fellows like Hitler is that they leave the world a worse place. I mean, this is outstanding <laughs> wisdom from Hanyu <laughs> you um, Yeah, um, the most useful as far as the war was concerned, because I was really terrified, putting my... I mean, as a, as a woman writer and as a writer who's always loved gentleness, um, writing about the war is something I just felt horrified about. And I, but I knew I had to do it. It was a huge part of his story and of what happened in the end. So that scene where he's in the water and surrounded by dead bodies is, is just as a piece of writing, as a piece of imagination, as a piece of storytelling. It is it's sublime. Yeah. Well, I was lucky there in that um, my mother had told me that the poet Guy Butler mentioned my father in his memoir. She said, your father doesn't come off very well in Guy Butler's memoir. So I, I got a copy and actually he was mentioned four or five times and never with the, you know, the, never in a complimentary fashion. My father was clearly found things funny that were not funny to other people and that was, that was a major problem. Um, but one of the useful, there was, so there were two useful things. The one was getting a sense of how my father was being seen by people, what the problem was. But also, I knew that if Guy Butler was around some particular scene, my father was also close behind. So I was able to, to take one or two of Butler's experiences and transpose them and I mean, create them entirely differently. But the matter-of-fact way in which he wrote them um, and, and give them to my character in, in order to traumatize it. That's what I had to do. I had to traumatize my father. Uh, I know from our all-too-infrequent coffee mornings um, in Musenberg Court Bay that this has been, I think, without doubt, the most difficult book to vote. Yeah, look, John, this was a near-death experience. Um, I, I don't know. I'm very surprised that we're sitting here. Um, 
there, there were, I mean, for myself, I, I really struggled with the book. I, I really struggled to, to balance work and the book. I had no social life whatsoever. My bottom hurt. Um, I just, I, you know, it was, it was an ill-making experience, and, and you, you do tend to go through the things your characters go through. So it was also harrowing. Um, and uh, then the early readers reports were negative, and they were negative in a way that sort of nearly broke me. And you have to, what you have to do with negative readers reports is, first of all, just see that the reader is saying there's some good here. Well, the one reader didn't find anything good, so that was, we'll leave that. So the, the reader who did find something good, then I, I was able to sort of just focus on the problem. And what was interesting was that at that stage, that reader felt that the frame narrative was the problem. And I actually, that did resonate. Once I got rid of my ego and my, you know, my wounded, hurt feelings, I thought that is true. I have been hiding from the reader. I let them look into this part of the book through like a dirty windscreen. And I actually need to clean that windscreen. I need to make it absolutely crystal clear what it was like for Gina to write the story of her father. Because the readers report that I gave you was very positive. You, <laughs> yeah, no, you kept me going in a very dark moment. <laughs> but the, 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 this version of the book is significantly different in, in structure, primarily, from the original manuscript that I read. Perhaps uh, just tell them what the differences are and the, and the changes that you made, which are in line with what this particular reader's report suggests. Yeah, well, originally, uh, to the, I, I, I always wanted to have the idea that uh, there is a female character, somewhat like me, but not called Fanula, who's trying to write a novel about her father. Every time she's tried to write a novel before, she's failed. She's had a kind of nervous breakdown and she hasn't been able to finish the novel. Um, this time she really wants to, to finish this book. Um, in the original draft, I did this really idiotic thing. If I think about it now, it's so 101. I, instead of letting us see Gina struggle close up, really close up, or painfully close, that, that she is a suffering writer, she's really struggling to get this manuscript off the ground. I surrounded Gina by a loving sister. I think I just couldn't help it. That, that, that yeah, because you are surrounded by two yeah, loving sisters. Yeah, it's this domesticated, loving part of me that I just couldn't do this to her. I couldn't. What I had to do was um, take Gina away from that sister who was forever cooking her meals and offering to illustrate her novel and just being so loving and kind and sisterly. I just stripped Gina right down and make her this lonely person, even more lonely than I am, and that's saying And something. she works in a call center. So <laughs> <laughs> she has to deal with the uh, less, you know, she has to deal with the people that call center operators need to deal with. So that doesn't help her much, does it? No, and so she's, she's constantly being, um, yeah, bombarded with people harangued by people who are unhappy customers. Um, so it's soul-destroying work, and then she, she asks for overtime, and, and they say, no, no, at your level, overtime is expected. So this, this novel is just having to be squashed into the tiniest places. 
Um, and I, I wanted the reader to get the sense of that writing struggle. But someone who interviewed me um, last week said, oh, um, it's, it's a parody, isn't it? It's a parody of the writer's struggle. So, <laughs> well, no, actually, it is like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so what the structure of the novel is that two things are happening. Um, Paddy's life is progressing from 19, his birth in 1917 to his death in the 1970s. And Gina's book is progressing from the initial paragraph um, to, to the first draft, to the failed first draft, to the more successful second draft struggles, and to the point where her siblings are reading the book. So the book is coming to a kind of triangular point where, where the two narratives will actually join up and, um, and will yeah, be fused. I'm going to sort of treat the two strands to talk about the Paddy narrative and then talk about Gina's struggles slightly separately. Um, you are, is the word famous, notorious? You are known for writing books without plots. And this one doesn't have a plot as such, it, but it has a narrative because it has that narrative of Paddy's birth, Paddy's you know, teen, teen years, Paddy's 20s, and so on. So Paddy birth, Paddy death. Um, and I, I, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering how much of what I'm reading is true, whatever truth is. So the things that happened to Paddy, how, obviously the, the moments in which they happened, what happens at school is imagined because you weren't there and he didn't write extensive diaries. But how much of what happens to Paddy actually, in the book, happened to your father, Paddy? Well, there are these, I suppose, the, the steel posts of fact are that um, he uh, left England because he didn't want to work in a lace factory. Um, I have him actually working in the lace factory and getting fired. Um, he came to South Africa on the very day that they were um, sort of closing the borders because the war had broken out and conscription was in and he fell into the category. They were only conscripting 20 to 22 year olds at that stage and he was bang in that category. And when I looked at the passenger manifest and I saw the date my father got onto the ship to South Africa, I thought, you are fleeing the war. There is no other explanation for you know, coming to South Africa. Um, and on uh, in the same passenger manifest on, on a different ship, the uh, same um, date, my mother is arriving in, in England to fight the war. And key, and damn key, <laughs> damn strength. Um, so these two, just the idea that um, that their destinies were kind of slightly crossing long before they actually met. That intrigued me. Um, he did work on some kind of orange farm in Millsbrae. Um, I, I have no idea what happened on that farm. I made that up. <laughs> um, he did, of course, work in, in advertising. Um, he did work on the radio. Did he meet your mother the way that you say in the book? That he oh, yeah, well... My mother said that my father heard her singing on the radio, which is bizarre because my mother didn't sing on the radio at all. But she said it just happened that for some reason 
she's been asked to sing a number, not the, not the song I put in there, but and she because she couldn't sing, she sang it very low. She sang and my father heard her and fell in love with her. And immediately he was a radio producer at that stage and he said, we're going to find a short story or anything we can dramatize because that voice, you just have to, you know, be my star. And I mean, women can't resist that stuff. <laughs> How would I know what would He's. I loved him so much when he was young, when he was you know five, six, seven, eight. He's, he's, there's a kind of precociousness about him which is really elfin and charming, and there's a what, what is it? There's there's a refusal to be cowed by the world and, and an interest in the world, but interest from a different angle than boys of his age would have been interested in the world. And then you know, he goes to goes to France during the school holidays because his mother doesn't really want him because she's having lovers of her own and she doesn't want him to, to get in the way of that. And um, so he's sent off uh, to the priests to learn better French and then he meets Coringa and they falls in love with her and stays in love with her for a very long time. And then I start to like him less as he gets older, he, he, well, he becomes a less likable person. He becomes the kind of person about whom it's easy to hear you say that your brother's had a difficult relationship with him. But because of that, that youthful whatever it is, I kept on forgiving him. And when you talk about bad things that he did, he thinks that he shouldn't have done, and, and so on, I go, yeah, it's, it's somewhere inside of there is still that young, sweet, charming, lovely, bright, slightly skew boy. Well, I mean, I think that is the great um, pleasure and discovery of fiction, which is that you can give people back their childhood and um, you can get readers' sympathy for otherwise unsympathetic characters. Um, and, I mean, I, know, I think it was a risk. I, I was aware that there was a risk in writing this book that people wouldn't follow Paddy to the end. But I, I hope readers keep keep feeling that perhaps he could get better, or or seeing some glimpse of the, the little boy again. Um, yeah, uh, I really want to sort of resurrect him in a way. I want to bring him back to life so that I could understand him and um, that I could understand how the little boy that I imagined could become the man we knew in the last three or so years that were so difficult. Um, and I, the thing about trauma, um, what I think happened to him is well, it's, it's a double suffering, really. You, you get traumatized once, and then you get traumatized a second time because the particular way in which you act out your trauma, the particular uh, patterns of behavior you adopt, whatever they are, tend to be antisocial. So you get, you know, so you've been punished once, and then you get punished again. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of generate some sympathy. It was very important to me that there was that sympathy for what happened in the war. Um, 
achieved what you hoped you would achieve in terms of your relationship with your father and your father's memory through writing about him in this way? Yeah, I think um, it's so strange to me that um, writing the book, even though I, I know how much is fiction, I feel like I know him better now and understand him. And I feel like, um, you know, for this person who is buried in an unmarked grave. I feel like when he is now properly buried, my siblings have put up a, a plaque for him. And um, there, there definitely is, for me, a sense of, of some um, closure, if you like, um, of yeah, restoring to somebody their whole self instead of only knowing them. I mean, we do this, and it's, it's a failing of ours. We tend to remember people's worst streets um, and, and label people very quickly. And um, so restoring him, it's, I think writing the book was an act of reclamation, redemption. Those would be words I would use. The book is called The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers. And he only, as far as we know, loved one. He only tells about his love for one, Karinda. So why the, why the plural for the tamer? Well, it's a very important point for me that um, I realized as I was thinking about him, his attraction to Karinga and then to my mother, and he was clearly, it was clear to me that he loved my mother. And I thought, what do those two women have in common? And then I thought, but my mother was also incredibly brave. She didn't put her head inside the jaws of a crocodile, and she didn't run up staircases of blades. Or, or ask to be buried alive, that would have been a particular phobia of hers. Um, but she was, the way she was in World War II, she, would, she was dodging doodle bombs, she was, um, she would do things like, she was um, at one stage plotting aircraft and she knew those pilots and she was counting them in and she would know that there were two missing, but she would still go and do her work the next day. It was like, for her, death and fear you just never spoke about them. She, we only saw my mother cry three times in our whole life, and those were for big public figures who died, like Churchill. So, you know, she, she was not a person who had any script in her. And she was incredibly brave, you know, about when, when things got really difficult for the family, um, resilient, um, and, and a great cheerleader for everybody. And then I actually think there's a third crocodile terror. And I, and I think that that's Gina. I think that's Gina. Yeah. <laughs> the corners to the ball center of the crocodile. <laughs> no, the novel. I think the novel. Oh, the novel is a crocodile. Yeah. 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 Three. Um, the the relationship with Karinga is, is is absolutely central to the story, and so Paddy has gone to supposedly improve his French with the brothers and uh, the fathers, and um, one of them knows the circus people, so takes. Uh, takes Paddy to the circus, and they're watching a rehearsal. Suddenly, Karinga entered. She was wearing diaphanous pantaloons and a spangly brassier top that left her midriff exposed. She stood against the board with her limbs arranged in a star shape. Babette's piano playing became more emphatic. The muscle man picked out a knife stand of Karinga and then threw. Knife after knife after knife flew at the board. Remember that she's immortal, Paddy told himself. 
as he willed each blade to stay on course. When Karinga's petite, perfectly curved figure was completely outlined in hearts, the muscle man made a gesture to indicate that it was she, above all, who should be applauded. My God, said Father Jean-Marie Exaly, she has survived. Clapping was not enough. Paddy stood up and cried, Encore! Karinga smiled and detached herself from the board. Some knives had penetrated her mass of hair, though without touching her scalp. And now it is the turn of, well, she wasn't French, was she? So, she, was she was French. French. She, she was pretended French. to be an Indian, the only Indian fake here. Um, so um, I'm, I'm just going to not give her a French accent because I'll stop that. And now it is the turn of our Irish friend. Well, he says he's Irish. Come on, if you cry encore, you must be prepared to give encore. Like one of her mesmerized crocodiles, Paddy submitted. The strong man readied the blades for his new target. Paddy stood against the board. A ray of light lanced through a tent flap that caught him in the eyes. His heart protested about what was to happen to him. His hand reached into his pocket. Perhaps if he could touch his dog-eared pack of cards, he would be comforted. Instead, he felt a piece of paper from the Irish Times. That's obviously explained. The muscle man took the first knife in his hand. With his body angled sideways towards Paddy and one eye closed to better see his target, he was preparing to throw. Paddy heard the voices of Father Jean-Marie and Brother Pierre raised in protest, but was shushed. If I do this, thought Paddy, I will be accepted, but I won't do it as Richard or Dick. I would like to speak, he said, while you throw. The boy has an excellent sense of theatre, said Isabel. If he can keep the tone of his voice even while knives are raining down on him, then he is surely a circus man more. Hello, said Coringa. Speak while the show goes on. I am Paddy Dowling, he began. The first light knife landed near his right hip. Paddy took a deep breath and continued speaking from memory. The name used to be O'Dowling, and before that O'Dunlane of the Bog. The second landed near his left hip. The Darlings are descended from the kings of Leinster through Crimthan Castle, the McMord line, a, a knife whipped to his right. Darlings were of great importance in olden times. A knife landed close to his neck on the left side, and were chiefs in the southern part of Leinster. Another landed to the right of his neck, holding possessions in Wicklow, Queens, and Kilkenny. A knife aligned with his left eye, counties, and with his right eye. And one day I will go to Ireland and meet the Queen of the Fairies, because I am not English, I am Irish. Okay. <laughs> Don't you want me just to read the whole of the rest of the book to you? <laughs> so, I mean, that relationship with Karinga, it, it's, uh, you said that she loved him so much that she was prepared to disrupt his wedding. Did she love him? I mean, she had a baby with somebody else, and um, she kept lying to him about the return of the engagement ring that he'd given her, and he loved her. Without doubt. He, he loved her. I think... I, I mean, See, I, I, it's this thing. I don't know whether I'm talking about Paddy Dowling, the real man, or Paddy Dowling, the central character. <laughs> well, I had to kind of... I did a little bit of research about Karinka to see what people had said. And, um, and I did think that her clearly very impoverished childhood, that she'd been in the circus from you know long before little girls should be working, um, suggested that money would be important to her. And I mean, she did, at one stage, they said she was earning more than the British Prime Minister. I don't know. Um, I think that was, maybe it was an advertising gimmick. Um, I, I found on the internet the movie that she did. Yeah. 
and she wasn't very good in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Bees of Paradise? Paradise, yes. Yes, yes I think it was quite late in her <laughs> career. Um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose one of the themes of the book is what, what is love? Because, you know, sometimes you, you kind of, you want a person. Um, but you don't necessarily what, love them in, in an altruistic way. She wanted, she needed his love. She needed to be loved. She needed adulation of the public. Um, and I think she was quite touched by the, the way he loved her. He was younger than her. I mean, she, there were two different birth dates for her. And she, she, she was either four years younger than him or eight years <laughs> older, sorry, older than him. And can I just say, with your Arabian man, that that knife throwing story is adapted from something that I believe that I was told that my father did do. And that was he interviewed a knife thrower live on radio with the knives whistling past him. Wow. And we, we've sometimes thought about looking that up, haven't we, on, a, on an old reel-to-reel? -reel. We actually heard it. Did we? Okay. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a story which does that from my radio. <laughs> I can't. I once tried to interview, well, I did interview a porn star who took off her coat and revealed herself to completely start naked in the studio. That was quite, that was quite disturbing, but I think knives are worse. Yeah, well, Automatic. Yeah. <laughs> the things you can do on radio. Yeah. I, um, I, did, I did the first bungee jump live on radio, which was at the Rand Daily Show when Rand daily show um, when they used to have over Easter many, many years ago. And I was mic'd live and I timed up and I told people what I was doing and I stood at the top looking down at a 30 meter drop. My <laughs> legs were tied together and I was told what was going to happen. And I'm narrating the radio all of this time, all of this time, all of this time. And then they say, one, three, two, one, jump. And I jump and all you hear on the recording is, That's full of knives and better. <laughs> It, it was a story that was part of the family. How, how much was it a part of the family? I mean, how much did the children know about Karinga as you were going towards your father's death in the 70s? Very, very little. No, we didn't even know how to spell her name. Um, we just knew there was a crocodile there. I can't really explain our lack of curiosity, except possibly it was linked to a kind of squeamishness about what happened at the end of my father's life. And um, that, yeah, I, I just feel like, I don't know if I'm speaking just for myself or for everyone, but we didn't see him as a person with a whole big dramatic story. Um, oh. I mean, it, it, it strikes me that you could take the fragments from a writer's diary. That's the way each, ta each chapter is titled when you get Gina's point of view. You could extract those and publish them as a as a guide to writers. A warning. As a guide to writers. Um, when I think about all the novels I've ever read and loved, from Wuthering Heights and Mrs. Dalloway to Ember's Breathing Lessons and Bel Canto, I think the most important decision the authors made was how to treat time. Once you've decided how you're going to pleat, fold, rouge, tack, hem, time, make it go forwards and backwards, make it leap or creep or stand still, then you have the architecture you need. I mean, I'm not a writer, but it's, that strikes me as being incredibly good advice for a writer. I'm looking at some of the writers. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 
Yeah, that elasticity of time, which is also, I think, we live with it all the all the time. Um, you know, we think life is chronological, and that we um, we leave things behind us. But there's a point where Gina says she, when she's having a bad day at the call center, she's actually still in the garden of her childhood, swinging. And her sisters are calling out to her from below, saying, let's play this game or let's play that game. Then you can go somewhere. What I'm saying is you can go somewhere in your head that's preferable to the place where you are now. So therefore, time has this folded and elastic quality. It's only because we are given timetables and calendars that we see it as something blocked out in little squares and, and that the past disappears. But in fact, the past quite clearly comes with us. And we haven't mentioned epigenetics. Um. <laughs> I was hoping to, to finish without mentioning epigenetics. <laughs> but I think there's also that sense of um, very ancient time being carried along with us. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean there's so many examples that I could, uh, I could quote. Books have enemies. One of them is the over-eager author herself blathering about her writing plans. There are others from one of the slips of paper my mother used to leave on my desk. The enemy of promise is the pram in the hallway. Your pram in the hallway is your job at the call center. Or Gina's problem. And um, you know this, this, this constant immersion in the book that you're writing. Even when my head was underwater, I was thinking about the book. This won't work. Too much telling here. No good link there. I can't talk to people about what's happening in the news or on our street or even in our lives. Because when I'm writing, I live out of time. I am inside the chronology of my book. Amongst other things, I wonder why men aren't wearing hats. And again, I think that's probably a common experience. Um, finishing a book you've loved reading is like leaving home until you find the next one. You wander about disconsolately, sleeping under metaphorical bridges. And so all of these things about writing and reading are on these pages. And they, they, they jewel they are absolute sparkling bright 29 karat jewels. And they nearly didn't get into the book if I had a negative reader's report. <laughs> and how much, I mean, they, they do, they are, are they kind of autobiographical? I mean, pretty much. I mean, you, you, you might phrase, no, that's, that's, that's Nula. That's me. That's, that's me when, when the reflections on writing are me. Yeah. Um, I, that's, and I, I sort of have always wanted to write the kind of book that allows me to expand, just to hold forth. I don't know. Have my own little one woman show about what I want to say. That's, and so, yeah, you say, yeah, I'm not really interested in plot because I just want to keep the reader company. Sure. Are not supposed to think about their parents having sex. Their parents have obviously had sex at least once if there's one child, twice if they're two, or they think they have. And I <laughs> can't think about my parents having making sex. Paragraph of the weekend was my father losing his virginity to Karinka. I had to get over my own inhibitions in order to reach his exhilaration. No. <laughs> Were you at all squeamish about your writing about your father's losing his virginity? No, by that time, I was so I was on the ferry from Norway to Newcastle. I was, um, you know, I was with them completely. Wearing a hat. Even the little alligator watching them. 
from its tongue. <laughs> I had it all. That gun was my best sex scene ever. <laughs> One of, one, of the, one of the many, 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 many really lovely things about this book is the, the letters that um, Fanula or Gina, or Gina, Fanula Gina makes Paddy Paddy write to Karinga. And this is after he's visited a brothel, women in a state of disrobement, hailed them from many rooms. Paddy caught the eye of a slightly older woman. She indicated with a turn of her head that he was to follow her. When she closed the door, she simply lay down on the mattress and waited. He swallowed. This was ghastly. He sat on the edge of the mattress. Tell me something, he said at last. You prefer to talk, she said mockingly. No, I just want to hear you talk a bit first. Talking is extra, she said. <laughs> Afterwards, not far from the brothel, he found a stall and bought a ring. At the first possible opportunity, he wrote to Karinga, Cairo, darling girl, I keep thinking of the nights, too few we spent together. Any other love is tawdry. I have bought you a new ring. Cupo will give it to you. Let us marry immediately after the war ends. What I imagine for our future is a big garden with lots of trees, two deck chairs, one for me and one for you, and a dam for the alligators, safely faced. Later you will put your arms around me, arms still warm from the sun. And he signed it the way he signed all of his letters to Karinga. I love you, I love you, I love you. Lula, your family had a big garden with lots of trees and lots of children, and we, I, we all of love you, love you, love you. Oh. <laughs>